The United States established the Space Force in 2019 as the world's first and only independent Space Force. Its mission is to protect U.S. and allied interests in space. Space is an important domain for a wide range of applications, including communications, observation, scientific exploration, and recently tourism. In this episode, special guest Ryan Welch joins us to discuss the mission of this newly formed organization. Ryan Welch is a regional vice president of space systems at Shift 5. He served as an officer in the Air Force from 2005 to 2008 at Space and Missile Systems Center as liaison to SpaceX as head of a joint NRO-NASA Air Force program to upgrade launch engines and as deputy chief for the Delta IV launch system. Most recently, prior to joining Shift 5, he was at Pacific Northwest National Labs as advisor to the CTO of Space Systems Command and leading development of some enterprise-wide cyber-hardening capabilities for the Space Force. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. So um, the Space Force uh, formation was was um, the result of, of, of a lot of work, I think, laid down by the Air Force and other government organizations. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the number of uh, uh, memes and um, uh, <laughs> internet uh, culture that arose around uh, the Space Force and the naming of the service members that serve in the Space Force was a lot of fun for us. But I think, um, you know, it really represents kind of a very interesting time, you know, space is a very different domain. Uh, and the, the sort of mission and vision of the Space Force is something that I think maybe got lost in a lot of the fanfare of like standing up a new force. So mm -hmm. I thought it would be interesting to just start with the basics and just, mm -hmm. you know, explain like, what is the mission of the Space Force? Yeah, so yeah, it is funny to think about just all the fanfare around Space Force and you know, I've heard it said that they they took the name of the 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 space warfighter. They're called Guardians, you know, from from the movie, and they they took the logo from Star Trek, and that they're all they're all mad and saying that they should all get together and file some sort of joint lawsuit against them. For <laughs> so it's just it's funny to hear that, and then the the Netflix show that came out uh, about Space Force. So yep. yeah, a lot of a lot of funny stuff floating around there, thinking that Space Force is one of those. Um, war fighting domains where we're riding around on rockets, you know, shooting aliens. And that's definitely not what Space Force is about. <laughs> uh, so you're telling me that I can't be a, uh, 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 a shuttle, uh, a space shuttle uh, machine uh, gun uh, door gunner. <laughs> yeah. That, that's not a, that's not, not a real job. You're not going to live out your Star Wars or Star Trek dreams, you know, that, that you were hoping through Space Force. Okay. But, but Elon Musk did recently come out and show the future launch, future generation launch vehicle for travel to Mars. And that looked very Star Wars-esque. So, yeah, <laughs> there, there's possibilities in your future, Josh. You know, don't, don't okay. shut them all down right now. <laughs> I, you know, uh, just keep the dream alive. Yeah, keep it alive. So, yeah, so Space Force, their motto is Sempra Supra, which is always above. Yeah, they're focused on the high ground. So basically for Space Force, we say anything above 100 kilometers is their warfighting domain. And, you know, that's as far as turf is concerned, that's the largest uh, turf of any service that exists because, you know, the reaches of space are, are, are always ever expanding, right? So, but our accessibility to space is obviously not, not quite that far. So when you think about 
um, space force, you're talking about that domain. And basically, space force is focused on recognizing space as a warfighting domain and providing the capabilities to enable accessibility and use of, of space capabilities that are critical for uh, all kinds of domains, like, like you had mentioned, um, in theater, command and control, navigation, even things like maybe you got up this morning and went and bought a coffee and processed a credit card. You know, all those capabilities are enabled by space. And so it's really a recognition that started back in 1983 with the establishment of the U.S. Space Command. And then, as you mentioned, in 2019 with the Space Force, that um, space is an enabling capability where adversaries are developing anti-space capabilities and that we need to organize, train, and equip that next generation warfighter to be able to um, not fly around on rockets and go warp speed, but, but at, be able to develop those capabilities, protect those capabilities, secure those capabilities so that they're re readily available for um, what sort of this next generation evolution of warfighting looks like, sort of this joint, they call it joint all-domain operations, where you're integrating multi-sensor platform data and artificial intelligence and data science to to more rapidly uh, make decisions in the field and make decisions at a quicker pace to allow us to stay ahead of our adversaries. So when you talk about Space Force, you're really talking about acquisitions. So there's Space Systems Command, which is where I was stationed at, which um, is being stood up. I think it's actually officially announced now. Their SSC, which was Space and Missile Systems Center. And their job is really that acquisition center of excellence role where they're procuring the launch systems, which are the capability to put things on orbit, um, the, the ground systems. So out of Peterson, you have the guys that are, you know, flying the satellites. They sit in these command and control nodes and they send commands to the satellites. And then you have the link, which is the antenna that com communicates with the SV that's on orbit. And then you have the satellite itself. And so you have that whole chain of capabilities that are necessary to put something on orbit and sustain its operations to support critical missions of the warfighter in the field. So when you think about Space Force, you think about that acquisitions piece, you think about the operations maintenance sustainment piece of, of making sure that those assets can operate. So like advanced, extremely high frequency satellite is secure communications satellite and um, they're looking at protecting that making sure that that can operate effectively in theater and then also deterring threats so space has become an ever-increasing um, I don't know if hostile is the right word but a threat environment and we can talk a little bit more about that later but um, providing that deterrence aspect so that adversaries you know don't disrupt those critical assets for us is that, is that helpful or did I go too deep? Totally, yeah. I mean, I think it's like a really uh, great like overview of really where we are today and what sorts of activities are going on. And, and it sounds like, you know, I mean, the, the sensational stuff is when we send, you know, a uh, scientific, uh, you know, uh, obser observation vehicle to Mars or like around the solar system to take pictures or we send astronauts to like the International Space Station. But, 
you know, really like the day to day, it sounds like the vast majority of activity is around satellites and the sort of um, supporting moving bits and bytes around the planet or taking photos and and being able to sort of interact with with the ground um, for observation purposes. That that sounds like the, the, a, a large majority of the activities um, in space force are sort of revolving around around satellites. Is that fair? Yes, yeah, that's fair. So, you know, the mission of the Space Force is not to explore planets or get to Mars. You know, that's that's Elon Musk's mission. You know, he said he wants to die on Mars and not on entry on a launch vehicle, but with his feet on the ground. Um, and then, so that's Elon Musk's mission, obviously, with SpaceX. And then NASA's is exploration, scientific research. And then Space Force is really focused on um, accessibility, and use of those capabilities that are on orbit and deterring adversaries um, and competing in that space to ensure that we stay ahead of, of uh, the people that are trying to compete with us and, and cause some sort of kinetic effect to our assets that are on orbit. And so, yeah, it, we, we think of it as an actual warfighting domain where, where um, the traditional principles of warfare exist. Right. And, and I think it is, you know, it's asking a lot of the Air Force, for example, to sort of expand to incorporate these assets that are really far off the ground. Right. Um, I mean, that you sort of there's always these conversations about when do you stand a new service up? And we've typically aligned those with new domains of warfare. Right. Like you've got, you know, age old delineation between you know, the Navy and, 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 uh, you know, ground forces like the army, um, the air force and, you know, the early 1900s or mid 1900s, we stood that up because it was just so clear that it's, it's a quite different mission. And I think we're seeing a similar thing with, you know, the air force sort of satellites and operating satellites, at least, you know, is, is quite different from operating, you know, air operations for, for, for aircraft. So it makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like, you know, at least today, when we think about defending, so, so satellites become so embedded in civilian life and military life, like you mentioned a whole bunch of examples of, I mean, we use satellites for global positioning, right? I mean, which all of us rely on so much to be able to do really anything these days. Um, communications, right? It's a, it's a primary way of moving bits and bytes around the world. Um, observation, taking, you know, taking photos and those sorts of things. Um, and as those capabilities become more and more embedded in civilian life and military operations, those satellites become really critical assets to defend, right? Uh, and you mentioned that a big mission of the Space Force is to defend those satellites, which are obviously very vulnerable. Uh, from sort of kinetic effects, what what does that look like? What where's the the space domain as a kind of kinetic domain of warfare uh, today, and where is it going? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's there's kind of three ways I think about it. So from a, a jamming um, perspective or directed energy perspective, so you know jamming through RF. Um, and then you have uh, lasers, right? High-powered lasers pointed at certain objects that can cannot it can cause those specific um, assets to either be degraded or non-operational altogether. Um, and then you have like what we saw in 2007, uh, kinetic effects where the Chinese 
launched a ground-based missile at one of their satellites as a test and destroyed that thing and shot it into about 3,000 pieces. Um, so there's, there's those, like the, the jamming, the directed energy, there's kinetic effects. There's also, <clears throat> I want to say it's the SJ-7 satellite that is a Chinese satellite that basically has an arm that can theoretically get in near proximity to another satellite, grab that satellite, uh, and, you know, I mean, who knows, whatever, whatever it could do with it, shake it, hug it, high five it, you know, <laughs> break Those things move rate. pretty fast. That seems very, that seems like a very hard, uh, hard thing to do. Yeah, they are moving pretty quick. Um, there's also another satellite that if you think about it, like a Chinese nesting doll, it, <laughs> it, uh, or a Russian, sorry, Russian nesting yeah, the, doll. Uh, the Matryoshka dolls, I think they're. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's basically a satellite within a satellite. It can get close to another satellite and then it will launch uh, another satellite that basically acts like a projectile to, to cause physical kinetic effects to whatever its specific target is. Um, and then Russia also has a ground to air satellite interceptor system. So, so there's those, those kind of uh, anti-sat capabilities that are either currently on orbit or being developed. And as accessibility to space and the barriers to entry to space continue to lower, more people are going to um, increase their ability to have capabilities that, that they can have that sort of anti-space uh deterrence capability. Um, the other piece is like Space Force, they have over 1,900 cyber professionals, you know, so there's a real recognition that there is a cyber threat that exists for space. And, you know, um, those those threats are increasing. Obviously, Shift-5 and, and our technology is a recognition that there is an operational threat to all of these kinds of systems. And um, most all satellites are serial. You know, the bus has mil standard 1553, space wire, different, different kinds of serial protocols and the ability to disrupt those systems. You know, I mean, they, they look at it from a few different perspectives. You know, what if someone could potentially do some sort of malicious injection of code before launch? Or if you had a supply chain issue where you had some malicious component embedded on the system, um, that's for the SV side of the house or from the ground perspective, what if you could gain access to the system and cause some sort of malicious effect there that could either degrade the, the communication, the C2 up, uplink to the satellite or potentially do something to the SV itself. So when you think about the threats to space, you, you, you know, you think about it from RF, directed energy, physical kinetic effects from a ground to SAT um, capability, and then also from a cyber perspective. And I think more and more, all of those domains, as as I said, I mean, the barriers to entry, the, the model for space has changed so significantly in the last, you know, 15 years, where space was primarily, you know, the development of it was, especially on the launch vehicle side of the house was, was funded by the government to now having commercial operators with reusable launch systems that have significantly lowered the barriers to being able to get assets on orbit. And so that, that mantra of these huge, large government programs where we're spending, you know, multi hundred million plus on mission assurance 
to um, lowering that barrier and focusing more on reusability and manufacturing line for space assets is just sort of changing the market and changing the game for the way that we do do space and is also going to create more opportunity for more threats. You know, satellites on orbit with jamming capabilities, physical effects like we talked about, uh, ground to sat interceptor systems. So I think that I think that what is what is that going to look like? Uh, you know, five, 10 years from now, I think just the capabilities of those and new innovative ideas to have physical effects, uh, either through cyber or actual kinetic, kinetic effects is just going to increase. And it's so interesting that you kind of, you know, align the physical effects with the cyber effects because basically when, when we think about these kinds of vehicles uh, that don't have people in them, there's no, there's no person in the loop on the asset, uh, it makes cyber effects even more kind of tantalizing to an attacker because like there's no person in the loop to sort of disrupt the attack. You know, like we, we always say in information security, physical access is root access, right? Well, if the things flying in space, you know, the, uh, the, the arm satellites, uh, accepted, I guess, um, it's pretty hard to, to go out and touch that thing. Cause so once it's in, once it's in orbit, it's, it's out there and, um, you're sort of on a level playing field with an adversary who might want to take control of that asset or affect its operations. Right. Um, yeah, and it's it's so interesting to me that you know we see this like very transcendent property of how these things are engineered. Um, you know, we we satellites obviously look extremely different from you know a locomotive or a, a vehicle or or a maritime vessel, but all of these kind of mechatronic systems, the these these cyber physical systems, they have these architectures of. Um, sensors and actuators, you know, there are these sort of like, you know, discrete components that are responsible for, for doing some activity that could be, you know, sensing position in space and time or orientation, or it could be, you know, a solar cell that's charging a battery or, you know, operating the thing, or it could be a, a, a general purpose computer. And then they all kind of connect with these data bus. You mentioned two of them that are very popular in, in space, MIL standard 1553 and, and SpaceWire. Um, but the architecture is like very similar, right? It's sort of like these comp distributed components that communicate with each other over buses. Um, t tell us a little bit about that. I mean, these, you know, sort of, are, are satellites similar to, you know, what we've observed time and time again in these other domains where basically like they just were not designed with, with cybersecurity in mind and they're fundamentally trusting or are there some parts of the system that are, are sort of um, very heavily uh, secured and others that aren't? What, what does that landscape look like? Yeah, I think it's it's changing. So in Space Force, there's a lot of effort afoot to realize that mission defense teams need an ability to have on-orbit access to um, active uh, cyber capabilities to protect and defend these types of uh, assets. But you're correct, and I think Serial is further behind than TCPIP networks, whereas there's a lot of cyber protection solutions out there. And, you know, what, what we're doing, what we've done at Shift 5 is develop that technology that connects to that serial data bus and allows us to do intrusion detection and prevention. And those networks look similar across platforms, you know, from the standpoint of those um, specific physical 
things that are capabilities that the systems are trying to accomplish, whether it's to deploy a solar array or to open a, a Bombay department on an aircraft, right? It's a deterministic signal that's being sent across that serial data bus. And the unique thing about an operational technology environment versus like a TCP IP environment, which you, you're obviously well aware of this, Josh, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir here a little bit. But, you know, in those Internet of Things environment, it's a constantly ever-changing data flow environment. But in an operational technology environment, it's more deterministic where once you get a profile for what that signature looks like across a serial data bus, to open a Bombay door, deploy a solar array, or to engage a thrust system to reposition a satellite that's on orbit, you know, that that signature looks very similar. So once you develop a profile for what normal looks like, then the theory is, and what we've proven in, in areas that we've deployed our solution is that is that you can detect anomalies outside of that, you know, and we, we think about it here at Shift 5 in, in two ways, really, which, you you know, um, we think about it from like a rules signature standpoint of like, let's say some military intel unit gives us uh, a cyber threat or vulnerability and we, we develop a profile with that signature uh, and then we develop specific rules to alert and detect that signature. Or the second way is really sort of that next generation look with AI and machine learning of we come into a system, maybe they don't even totally know what their data signature looks like across their serial data bus, and we learn about that over time. And then we alert as there's certain changes that are within you know a certain band of tolerance that, that we set. And then as a result of that, we're able to detect anomalous behavior. And you, you can do that, obviously, from a cyber perspective, and that, that's being looked at even right now inside of Space Force um, with different efforts that are happening. And, um, you, you know, you can, see, you can see that anomalous behavior and then, and then you can use that for, for a cyber, but you can also use it for maintenance. So like if you were to see a specific component that is sending some sort of error message across the serial data bus, you might get early indication uh, on that system that you have a potential failure coming. So really what, what we're doing and what I think is, is will, will be hugely beneficial is that cyber hardening aspect to, to uncover data that what, you know, isn't visible right now from a serial perspective um, to enable cyber protection and mission assurance for all those assets that are on orbit. And then, and then also sort of secondary effect is now you have access to your data. What other interesting things can you do with that? Right with that data. So, so yeah, I think that those, those serial networks, you know, they have a, a, it's a standard for how they connect and communicate. And so once we've done it on one operational system, whether it's an air system, you know, ground-based combat vehicle or whatever, you know, we can then learn and deploy our solution on other operational technologies and, gain insights so that we can do the same thing for that system. Now there is obviously an integration time period where you're learning about that system and you're integrating your solution into that environment that takes time. But we, yeah, we, uh, yeah, there's, there is a lot of similarities and a lot of benefit, um, especially as we move. So I don't know, Josh, how familiar you are with sort of the mission and vision of Space Force, but they're really moving to this interconnected, innovative and sort of digitally dominant um, work um, warfighter and service and that I, when I think about space for that word digital 
just comes to mind because they're really trying to re-architect what a war fighting military service actually looks like. And, you know, being that they're the first modern service to be stood up in any recent time period, you know, they have, a, they have an ability to lay a groundwork that really is uh, digitally inspired, allowing them to move at the pace at which our adversaries are moving. I mean, they're innovating and developing threats at a, at a, a pace that in a lot of cases, you know, military government haven't been able to keep up with. And so they're re-envisioning what does a new warfighting domain look like, where we're able to build it, building the digital infrastructure to allow us to capture all that sensor data coming off these platforms that inform command and control and decision-making in real time to allow them to more rapidly respond to threats and also to innovate and develop those capabilities at a pace that they haven't been able to do. So like when Space Force was stood up, they were thinking, you know, historically seven to 12 years to get a, a satellite on orbit. They want to bring that down to three to seven years and they're laying the infrastructure to be able to do that. So so it sounds like diverged from the question a little bit, but I want to. Yeah, know. no, it's it's so fascinating. I mean, it, it really is like such an early. Uh, we're in such early days of this organization, and I think space is going to become increasingly important as we're launching more and more assets into it. The launch costs have come down. Our ability to like spin new technology out and put things in orbit, you know, is 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 increasing. So, you know, we have an environment of more things getting connected right uh at a digital level uh and 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 the volume of those increasing so like metcalf's law gives you a lot of interaction and complexity there um but you touched on something that's so interesting for these mission defense teams these sort of like the government's version of these threat hunters and incident responders that are responsible for like making sure that at a digital level the the assets that that the the either the air force or the army or the navy or uh, Marines or, or, or the Space Force have at their disposal are working as intended, that we don't have cyber intrusions and attackers trying to, to subvert the, the operation of these assets. And there is a like vibrant and robust community of, um, of, of cyber professionals that know how to protect enterprise IT networks, right? Like we have seen billions and billions and billions of dollars invested, both public and private, to build technologies and techniques and tools and training so that when you get onto, you know, an enterprise network with a Windows domain controller and Cisco network gear and, you know, this, you know, Linux servers and all these things, it's like well, uh, well understood how you go in and you figure out if there's an intrusion and how to do incident response and how to remediate these things. And in fact, the whole kit, the whole cyber kit that the, the mission defense teams and the cyber protection teams have uh, is based on these IT networks, these these sort of enterprise networks that are, to be clear, super important. And we've seen just how important these things are. You know, recently people weren't able to pump gas or buy meat at the supermarket or ride the bus in New York because of intrusions on the IT side, right? Uh, but we're at a whole new frontier these trillions of dollars of assets, including satellites and aircraft and maritime vessels and ground vehicles, that they're not IT networks, right? They, they are very much digital assets, but there's no IT networks on them. They are, they are, uh, they are operational technology, and they have a very specific kind of um, 
a very specific kind of, of, of uh, architecture. So, you know, these serial buses and the ability to collect data on them, detect intrusions, in some cases prevent them or remediate from them. I mean, I just think that that's going to become more and more important as the explosion of assets and their interconnectedness increases uh, in, in the future. Yeah, and it's a, it's a challenging environment because, you know, you ask a lot of programs and mission owners, do you realize that you have a potential vulnerability in your operational system? And oftentimes they're so focused on the mission that they don't realize that there are real threats to their system that exist. And so you have to educate them on the issue and the problem, because like you said, most of the conversation has been focused on those that IT infrastructure uh, challenge, not recognizing that the serial networks that control our operational uh, systems could have larger dynamic industry devastating effects you know, if certain mission systems were compromised. And so it's it's very important to recognize that we need to be proactive about this because what traditionally seems to happen in the cyber world is there's some large event and then the industry responds. Whereas we have an opportunity here that's unique in history. And even though there have been known threats that have been materi- have materialized, there hasn't been one at a national level or an industry level that has caused... Um, I mean, there have been ones that have affected industries, but from the standpoint of, wow, we need to put in regulations like this is going to change the game. You know, from from what I see, there isn't one like that that has happened yet. So we have this unique point in history to to be proactive about it instead of waiting for something bad to happen, which seems to be how we normally respond is we have some sort of industry event that that completely changes an industry and then uh, increases the barriers to entry in that and changes the competitive landscape and the ability for for new entrants and innovation. You know, we don't want that to happen. We want to get ahead of the game and start proactively addressing some of these known threats, you know, and, and actively protect these systems. You know, whereas an IT system, it's not it's not that they can't have negative kinetic effects, but you know, you can imagine uh, in an environment, you know, what kind of affects a missile system or an air system or, you know, a ground-based system that's mobile and deploying deploying weapons in theater. You know, if someone were to, to gain C2, command and control of that system, what kind of devastating effects they might be able to cause. And I'm not going to speculate here because I don't want to scare people, but, <laughs> but um, yeah. But the reality is, is we need to get ahead of this problem instead of wait for the problem to materialize. And yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And, and I think what's so interesting about the approach of basically solving cybersecurity issues through solving a data observability problem is that, you know, First off, it's it's the number one thing you can do to make sure that your systems aren't compromised and then determine what to do uh, if and when they do get compromised. Um, but there's so many ancillary benefits. You started illuminating some of them to mining the data off of the central nervous systems, of these assets. You know, I know like for the Air Force, as much as it pains me as a former Army guy, the Air Force is really out front on this in thinking about the organization as a software organization. And, you know hiring data engineers and data scientists and software engineers to solve problems for the organization and you know 
uh, you know, this old adage in, in sort of uh, in, in, in data science, uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you're, if you're unable to collect high fidelity data about the things that you're trying to draw inference from or to be able to like uh, make them operate in a more effective or efficient manner, um, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of limited in what you're able to do. But if, if you democratize the data that's coming off of these weapon systems, things like satellites or aircraft or maritime vessels or ground combat vehicles, uh, that becomes a substrate for you to be able to build really incredible and amazing things like, you know, real time sort of situational awareness systems uh, with highly granular data or uh, the ability to maintain things and be more predictive about the way that um, that you're you're doing maintenance on things or, uh, you know, understanding that there maybe are degrading parts and then you operate things in a certain way that increases the longevity uh, of, of, of those systems. I'd imagine that sort of satellites in the space domain are no different, that like by harnessing a lot of this data in ways that maybe we didn't anticipate when we engineered them, we might be able to get a lot more efficient, smarter, safer operation out of these assets. Yeah, definitely. There's a, a big effort that has been underway since the creation of Space Force, which is you know, a digitally dominant space force and laying the groundwork for something called the digital engineering ecosystem. And that's, uh, you probably, have you heard of platform one before? I don't know. If you Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, building that infrastructure based upon cloud technologies that allows them to do multi sensor, multi platform integration, like you said, the data architected at the right level, at the right quality, at the right location to allow, integration of what was historically, you know, spreadsheet driven, lot manually intensive process. Now they're looking at building that data warehouse and that multi-platform sensor integration at the right security level to allow and enable this sort of concept of joint all dom domain uh, operation command and control where, you know, um, it's leveraging these next generation technologies like artificial intelligence. So you could imagine uh, in that environment, you have all these streams of data that are coming in, um, ISR type data that's uh, informing new threats that are emerging. And, and you have a system that's learning based upon historical threats. And it, it alerts, you know, real time that, hey, we detected this sort of threat. And it's moving away from what used to take years sometimes to to put courses of action COAs in place to resolve threats to months. So like if you read the Space Force vision for where they're moving, I mean, you day one, you would have an alert from an artificial intelligence machine learning system that's gathering intel about the different threats that are out there and then it identifies one. Day two, you have AI ML systems that coordinate everybody's calendar and plan a conference to get senior leadership together to analyze what the threat is and make decisions about courses of action. And then determining what those courses of action are within six days. And then from like six to, to 30 days, working with these uh, platform one resources where they have these uh, software factories and software dojos that can rapidly iterate on a solution and turn that around in, you know, what once took years to a matter of months, you know, to more rapidly solve some of these uh, emerging threats. So it's a complete shift in, in thinking from, you know, a flip phone 
a flip phone military to, you know, an iPhone military. So that <laughs> next, you know, that, that next generation way of thinking of, man, how do you innovate in a way that allows right. us to outpace our adversary and then develop capabilities that continue to enable that, you know, from staying ahead of the adversary to also deterring, right? And when you think about deterrence, you think about deterrence, you know, in, in a couple different ways, either denying them some sort of advantage or making the cost prohibitive. Those are sort of the two pieces of the equation for how do you deter an adversary from, from performing some sort of action. And so both of these things are, you know, the way that the Space Force is establishing this digitally dominant workforce, you know, trained and equipped to leverage the resources that allows them to, you know, what once was that waterfall approach to development to, you know, that rapid uh, iterative approach, you know, whereas the old school method was we would develop this, you know, 500 page requirements document that outlines everything that we need to develop that capability to moving to, to more of a minimum viable product uh, mentality. Whereas that old met methodology was large requirements document, years and years of process, uh, ACAT one program, acquisition category one, large program that has to move through all the milestones and it will take us seven to 12 years to um, that next generation thinking, which is a hybrid of where the commercial market is moving to, where they're looking at instead of these really large programs that take years and years to develop and huge requirements documents to, you know, manufacturing line satellite constellations that when one breaks, we have another one ready to launch into orbit, right? Which just allows you to iterate at a lot faster pace. And so not saying that those old, old programs and that old methodology has gone away. It's going to be some sort of hybrid in there, but it's going to be enabled by that digitally mature, innovative infrastructure combined with a, uh, a forward leaning, forward thinking, you know, nimble force. You look at the budget of Space Force versus Air Force, you know, it's a factor of 10 difference. And, you know, you're, you're talking 15,000 warfighters, uh, you know, compared to hundreds of thousands of, of warfighters. You know, they have to be leaner, smarter, faster, more efficient at what they do. And, you know, we kind of like startups. So we, we like that startup mentality they're trying to build. Um, I just, yeah, I see a lot of, I see a lot of positive movement within Space Force to create that kind of culture from, from the top down, putting a lot of resources, time, effort into that digital engineering ecosystem. So it, it's so exciting. And I mean, I think with, with agile, nimble, um, excited organizations that are thinking in innovative ways, you're going to see a lot of, uh, a lot of movement and a lot of evolution in what Space Force is doing and, and the sorts of activities that they're involved with. I know this is like a hard thing to predict, but where do you see Space Force in 20 years? Do you see them sort of operating in much the same uh, sort of ways, but just in more agile, nimble uh, kind of uh, methods? Or do you see whole domains of kind of new um, sorts of activities that Space Force would be doing or the way that we as a species are like using space uh, that are, that are you know, going to happen in our lifetime that, that we'll be talking about? Yeah, there's, yeah, that's, that's a lot of, that's a big question to unpack, but it is an exciting thing to think about. You know, it's, um, Space Force's mission is really that warfighting domain and creating enabling capabilities. So I think, I think it will change to, uh, potentially enabling capabilities for potential space 
based locations, you know, I mean, uh, the idea is that however many years from now, we potentially will be a space-faring culture, interplanetary species that is, is allowed to, to look beyond just the horizons of Earth. And so if you think outside the box a little bit, you know, the, the warfighting domain currently exists for assets that are enable, primarily enabling capabilities um, that are usable for Earth. But, you know, thinking about the future, those capabilities could be enabling capabilities for future uh, interplanetary travel and and supporting assets and capabilities on other planets and or lunar based resources. You know, there's there is a huge amount of untapped resources that if we could leverage for uh, terrestrial purposes, you know, would allow us to better protect our environment and not not deplete natural resources here. So if we could if we could harness those resources to improve our way of life here and enable capabilities that are out there for us here, I think that'll sort of be the next generation of, of space forces is, you know, what does it look like to tap those resources that are almost limitless out there and use them, use them for, uh, for, for resources and, and improving way of life, life here. I mean, my, my, hope, but I, I don't think it'll be realized, you know, in, in my lifetime or any, any lifetime for that matter, because we, we need to recognize that there are adversaries out there who seek to do us harm. You know, I, I would love space. I mean, my dream is like the utopia where, where, you know, we live at peace and space is used for um, experimental research, uh, you know, improving way of life here and, and making life in places that, you know, don't have the natural resources that we have, you know, having that being an enabling capability for places around the world that, that aren't as blessed as we are here in, in America. And so, so yeah, I think, I think that, you know, that, that domain of what space force will potentially have to focus on will just expand as our capabilities to access more remote resources expands. I love it. Well, Ryan, I think we'll leave it there with that uh, far re far reaching prognostication. Uh, and um, I'm sure there will be lots of uh, space related news for us to talk about again. So I hope to uh, have you on again really soon. Yeah. Thanks, Josh, for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.